Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, you know, we did, a, we did a, a sort of a special edition of the podcast on Monday in the aftermath of the, I was going to you know, say the fall of Kabul, the sort of the fall of the whole Afghan government. But um, in some ways, uh, after two or three days now, what strikes me is it was not only apparently pretty close to bloodless, but the old crew just left and the new crew came in. And so it's almost, you know, it's almost hard to call it a, a fall exactly, more just like a nudge. And you know, like, you know, when someone, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot, there's obviously um, a lot going on there, both in the literal and figurative senses. And this is, that story is going to, move forward uh in the in the days and 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 weeks to come we're going to mainly talk about other issues today in 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 the podcast um because you know one thing i would say is we've had you know absolute saturation coverage of the situation in afghanistan uh over the last uh few days we may we may hit on it briefly at a few points um i think in many ways you know the it, it's it's been an example of the way that the DC media is very plugged in to the culture and organizational infrastructure that has sustained these decade decades long involvement uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Uh, you know we're we're out of Iraq, but not out of Iraq, and. I think where where DC is is very different from the rest of where the rest of the country is. That doesn't mean that this is popular in in the rest of the country, but I think we've seen that divergence in a very in a very acute way. Um, so, in any case, we are going to get to a number of of other issues. Really, the issues which were defining everything until the rapidly escalating situation in Afghanistan uh, took over everything, took over the whole national conversation at the end of last week, basically. And that is that we have these big legislative packages moving through Congress. And, uh, you know, it's during the pandemic, we all kind of lose track of time. Uh, But, you know, only a little more than a week ago, we had the, you know, one of the two bills passed the Senate, and, and, you know, kind of the beginnings of the next part of that, the big reconciliation bill. So we're going to talk about that. Um, we are also going to talk about uh, the census and redistricting, which is another big issue out there, uh, overlaps with the question of whether we're going to have, uh, you know, voting democracy reform at the federal level uh, in, this, in this term. And then uh, the COVID wars, you know, we have... It's funny, one thing I was looking at today is that before the events of the weekend, not a lot, but in a way that you could could measure, Joe Biden's public support had eroded a couple points, two or three points, something like that. Now, why is that? To me, the answer is 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 pretty clear. Two months ago, we thought COVID was kind of over. I'm not saying we didn't think any Americans would get COVID again. But it really seemed like the majority of adults had gotten vaccinated. If you wanted to get vaccinated, you could. And if you got vaccinated, yeah, there's some kind of really small chance you might get a minor infection. But basically, for you, the, 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 the pandemic is over. And then suddenly it's not over. And that's a bummer. That really sucks. I mean, <laughs> not to state the obvious, but that really sucks. It sucks at 
every level. It sucks at, wait a second, I thought I was about to get my life back. I went out, I got vaccinated, I got both shots, thought I was going to be able to go out to dinner and, and do this and do that and go back to my office and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly, well, no, we're not. And uh, I don't think that really, I mean, obviously, the, the emergence of the Delta variant doesn't have anything to do with the administration per se. But the approval of, of the people who run the government is inherently deeply tied to what's going on in the country. And we've had a pretty big reverse. Now, are we back to how it was before we had vaccines? No. I mean, not even close. And I say that both at a kind of an individual level, at a societal level and, and everything. Um, but we are not where we thought we would be. And when I say we, it's not just you and me and Kate. It's, it's the people who, you know, who understand epidemic disease. We didn't think we'd be here. And that's a, that is, um, that's a major disappointment. And that is going to have, not only is that going to be a big deal for a lot of people who end up in hospitals and who end up burying relatives, in most cases, relatives who didn't get vaccinated, but not in every case. So that's going to have a, 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 a big effect at every level. So it doesn't surprise me that that's showing up in the political, uh, in the way we think about the sort of the trends in, 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 in politics. Of course it is. And um, I, was, I was reading an article yesterday by a guy named Alexis Madrigal, who uh, is, a, is a reporter at The Atlantic. Um, and he was one of the two moving forces uh, that set up the COVID tracking project in 2020. And, and eventually was sort of the person who actually headed it. So this is this someone who, uh, I mean, I think, that, I think that project should have won a Pulitzer, frankly. There was nothing else going on in journalism in 2020, to me, to my mind, that was as significant as that. So he's been very, very deep in, in the data uh, for, you know, for a year and a half, um, probably more than almost anyone else because again you're overseeing that kind of project it's not you're 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 at it you're in it at every level and he had a piece in the atlantic uh that came out a few days ago i read it yesterday um and the, the point there was we need to go back to the data with a lot of humility and open minds because we don't really know exactly what is happening right now and a lot of it doesn't really make sense by what we thought we knew. And before people uh, read more into that than, than they should, we 100% know that getting vaccinated makes it much, much, much less likely that you are going to end up in the hospital or die of COVID. That is not up for debate. The evidence is overwhelming. And even if there's been some deterioration of the vaccine protection vis-a-vis -vis the Delta variant, or because some people are, you know, six, eight months out from being vaccinated, it's still overwhelmingly protective. But things are not moving exactly as we, uh, you know, <laughs> that's an understatement, as, as we were saying a few moments ago, things are not going as we thought. And there are other things like we have cases where we'll have multiple studies looking at something like the effectiveness of this vaccine or that vaccine. Um, and they're both sort of, you know, legitimate studies. And they say things are totally different, not totally different, like one says the vaccine doesn't work, but in how it works and, and just how well it works. And do you need more, you know, do you need a booster? Do you need a lot of the data doesn't line up. And you have other cases where, Look at what's happening in Florida. It is totally out of control there. COVID is worse there than it's ever been. Now, Florida hasn't done a great job with vaccines, for mostly for reasons I think we understand. It's in the Southeast. It's under a Republican government. Uh, you know, Trump is a big thing there. But things are way more out of control in Florida relative to other parts of the country than their level of vaccination would suggest. And so why is that? We got some theories, but we don't really know. And that's the problem. Um, and one of the things that came up in that article is that a lot of these things 
part of the reason that we don't know is that we just don't have well-collected, complete data on a lot of questions. And on a lot of those in Israel, in the United Kingdom, they have better data in large part because they have unified, integrated national healthcare systems. Now, you can kind of get into that is there's, there's a big overlap there between, you know, kind of uh, universal care systems versus our system. Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of basic data we just don't have. Stuff mostly gets collected at the state level and they're supposed to turn it over to the CDC, but they don't have to. And they don't all collect the data the same way. So one of the things that is happening right now is that there are really basic questions that you could have the data on that we don't have the data on. And we wouldn't necessarily know exactly what was going on if we had that data, but we'd be in a much better ability to know that, you know, if, uh, if, if, if we had it. So, um, those are all things we're going to talk about. So before we get to the rest of the episode, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. They're here to help you cut through the heat this summer. Their famous New Orleans style coffee says stays fresh in your fridge so you never have to wait in line, pay coffee shop prices, or leave your air conditioning. Concentrated and strong, Grady's tastes great however you take it. Black and bold, light and sweet, any, any way that works for you. And Grady's is the best cold brew value around. Order a six-pack of bean bags, and you get over 72 servings of cold brew shipped directly to your door for only 45 bucks. And shipping's free. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate. So I have done. I have done the Doom intro. What are we? What are we? Uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> yeah, as I was telling Josh before we came on air, I've been having a hard time this week. I feel really inundated and overwhelmed with the bad news. Some of you might feel like that too. So let's exercise some of that angst by talking about mm, the dumbest people on the Hill right now, which uh, I bestow the honor, the crown, to nine House Democrats who wrote a letter to Nancy Pelosi on Friday saying that if she doesn't bring the bipartisan bill, which the Senate already passed, to the House floor before the budget resolution, which you remember is the the top lines for what's going to become the reconciliation package. If she doesn't bring that bipartisan bill first, they will not vote for the budget resolution. Remember, the margins in the House are very thin, so Pelosi can only afford to lose three Democrats. So if these nine Democrats stuck to their guns and voted down the budget resolution, I mean, they would they would kill reconciliation or it would have to go back to the Senate. They would have to try to do it again. I mean, it would be a mess. So the and, whole- and, and, and to be clear on that, by killing reconciliation, they would make it impossible for even the mini bill to pass. Right. So since the two are conjoined, the whole thing goes down together. Right. So the thing, it's, it's just so stupid and so shows kind of the fallacies of being a centrist, right? Because these people who signed the letter are from purple districts and clearly are doing this because of some political calculus where they think it makes them look independent to kind of stick a finger in the eye of leadership. But remember, as Josh just said, these two things are intertwined for a reason. And that reason is so that moderates won't kind of gleefully vote yes on the bipartisan bill and then say, you know what, we, we notched an accomplishment, not going to be there on reconciliation, which is too big for most of them to be comfortable with. And then on the other side of it, it makes sure that progressives feel okay signing off on the small bipartisan bill, knowing that something bigger is coming down the pike, which will have their priorities in it and which will always also pass. This has been the strategy from the beginning. And what is so ridiculous about this is by demanding that Pelosi change the order of the bills, these Democrats are either showing a fundamental misunderstanding of the strategy or they don't care about it. Because if the House passes the bipartisan bill, it's off to Joe Biden's desk. It's done. There's nothing else that's keeping moderates around to sign off on the reconciliation package, which, as we've pointed out, is the bulk of the Biden agenda and is probably the only meaningful chance Democrats are going to get to legislate for years unless the midterms go differently than they are expected to go. And the rationale for potentially 
sabotaging the entire Biden agenda is that these nine House Democrats say American families can't possibly wait a few more weeks at the top, a couple months to have these bridges repaired. That is the argument. It's so ridiculous. And they're playing chicken with such a high stakes thing that I almost can't get my my mind around it because this political calculus that is so cinema-esque, this idea that it makes you independent, it makes you bipartisan, it makes you a centrist to mess things up for Democrats whenever, with gleeful abandon, no matter if it's not rooted in any kind of ideology, just whenever, that that makes you appealing to these swing voters. A, I think vastly overestimates the number of swing voters there are. As we've seen from these past election cycles, there just aren't that many people who are in the market to hear Democrats criticize Democratic leadership anymore. There just aren't many people who switch from one tribe to another each election. And even more importantly, if you're from a purple state and you're worried about these midterms, pretty much the worst thing you can do is make sure that your party, and you know, usually that's kind of measured in presidential approval, but that your party is unpopular when those midterms roll around. And the best way to ensure that your party is unpopular is sabotaging their only their only opportunity to pass legislation, to give you things to run on, to give you accomplishments to tout in your campaign ads. And just the idea that they are considering sabotaging the entire agenda for a fleeting moment of quote-unquote independence, which I'd be shocked if their constituents are paying attention to because it's a moment of quote-unquote independence on something highly technical and procedural that I don't think most people really follow at this granular of a level is just lunacy to me. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, you know it's led by this guy Josh Gottheimer uh, in who's who's in one of the northern New Jersey districts, and that district uh, until recently was a Republican district, and I think technically, I think Cook still says it's like you know Republican plus one or something like that. I think it's it's it. I mean, he's held it I think for two cycles or maybe. 83 cycles, pretty pretty recently. I suspect it's trended more democratic given where the suburbs are and stuff like that. That, that group of people, um, it's a mix of people who are in pretty marginal districts um, and they have, you know, they have an interest in being able to say, hey, when everyone was, you know, kind of lining up behind Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. I said, I'm independent and I'm not going to do everything you say and 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 the deficit and and blah and blah. Some of them, frankly, are in very blue districts. And those people, I think everybody should remember those folks and 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 try to remove them from office. Because if you're in a blue if you're in a blue district, uh, just no. There's 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 no justification for that whatsoever. Um, I suspect that what is going on here is that these folks do not want to and don't plan on actually upsetting the apple cart, but they want to kind of shake it a bit. But the thing is, you know, don't fly too close to the flame because things can things can get weird very quickly. Um and I, you know, I see this as largely, this is largely a, a matter of the, the, the weakness of the, you know, quote unquote centrists in the house. You know, no one really cares about them. So this is, this is their kind of gambit to kind of say, hey, you know, Kirsten Cinema and, and, and Joe Manchin, they're on Meet the Press all the time. What the fuck? What about me? Right. Um, so. I think at the end of the day, I do. I mean, and and to your point, the idea that it's like a rush to get this infrastructure spending, like you need it today. This isn't like checks in the mail, where you know, with the with the COVID relief package, you had people who weren't going to be able to pay rent at the end of the month. So there was genuine urgency, where even a week or so makes a difference. Certainly, a month makes a difference. This is about plans to rebuild bridges and refit homes and, you know, uh, build electric charging stations. This is not, this may be urgent in a non time scale judged in, 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 in weeks and months, but there's not time urgency. That's just absurd because these things take time to, to do. And, and so they would, they would, uh, you know, they kind of want to have it both ways. They want to, 
upset the strategy here or threaten the strategy here to demonstrate independence. Uh, but they're not even quite willing to say what their what their beef actually is, which is, I mean, again, really it is tonal. They want to show they're not party loyal because that for some of them works for them in their districts. But to the extent there's any substantive thing, they just don't want to, they don't want to spend a lot of money, you know, and if they want to say that, great. Um, so I'm not, I'm not like terribly worried that this is going to actually mess things up, but in partisan terms, and you know, partisan has a, gets a bad name, but a lot of what partisan is, is a coalition of people who often are very different. That's certainly the case in the Democratic Party, a coalition of people who agree to work together to get certain things done. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, it doesn't mean you, you know, you, 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 you follow your party in every case. But again, that's how political action works. That's how, that's how things move forward. Um, so not terribly worried about it, but I do think, you know, as I said, don't fly too close to the flame. I do think everybody should kind of make everybody who is interested in the future of the Democratic Party, uh, interested in this country not not falling apart, should just make a note somewhere, write down these people's names and remember them. You know, if 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 holding the majority comes down to you really need that person to win, okay, maybe next cycle isn't the time to you know to to remove them from office. But sometime maybe they'll run for senator, and remember never to vote for them. Because again, everybody, uh, it's important to remember the choices people make at, 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 at critical moments. Um, and again, this whole thing is centrists and, you know, we're kind of progressives and centrists. Even that is a little misleading. The bulk of the Democratic Party, and I mean the big bulk, the overwhelming number of senators and representatives basically are behind the sort of the overall package that's been divided up into two. Overwhelming. I mean, you know, we talk about the centrists. We're, in the center, we're talking about like two people. Yep. Maybe three or four when you figure the people who are not threatening to vote, no, but the people who are, you know, saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really comfortable. I need a little hand-holding here and there and stuff like people like John Tester, who comes from obviously a very Republican state. And in the House, what, you're talking about like eight people? You know, and when we talk about like, you know, the, often we're talking about, you know, the centers versus the progressives. And often that gets reduced to like, as though we're talking about like Josh Gottheimer versus like AOC. This isn't, that's, that's not what's happening here. The overwhelming number of representatives and senators are supporting with maybe a little fine tuning here and there, the overall package, which has been, um, divided up into these two packages for the reasons we all know. And we have this kind of two-tiered agreement to kind of like, we'll give you this, you give us that, you know, for the people on either side, on the sort of the fringes of the party who, who need certain commitments. So, you know, the thing, the thing, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, the thing I think we should be I shouldn't worry about like Josh Gottheimer. He's an idiot. The thing we should be concerned about is that what we said at the, at the beginning of the episode, Biden's popularity is slipping a bit now because of what is happening on COVID. That's not because anybody did anything wrong. That's just reality. Things are not going as well as we thought they would be. That is going to sour the public mood. I think that the... Washington, D.C. political establishment is vastly overestimating how much people are going to, A, care about what's going on in Afghanistan, or B, change their mind that it was the right decision to withdraw. But it's definitely going it's, to, it, it's, it's definitely not great news in the very short term for the president. So I think where we should be focusing our attention is that when things get a little wobbly, legislators start getting wobbly about their commi legislative commitments. So it is really important that all the Democrats in the Congress stay on side and keep focused because over the next couple months, they need to do this whole thing. 
And if they think that, oh, you know, Joe Biden's is his public approvals dropped a couple points, like, oh, maybe we should do this or maybe we should. No, that's stupid. The reality is there's a decent chance that the Democrats will not control Congress next year or, you know, at the end of next year's election or at least one house. That's just, again, they're, they're, so many things are lined up against them. So the answer is you do what you do a lot of stuff while you can. And it may not help you in 2022. But from the perspective of today, even with something as relatively small as Obamacare compared to what we're talking about now, that's not a dig at Obamacare. But we're talking about massive climate legislation, massive uh, social safety net legislation, massive, you know, it's, it's so much bigger. From the perspective of people at the beginning of 2011, like, oh, yeah, oh, we fucked up. We lost Congress, blah, 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 blah. Looks pretty good now. You have to, you have to think more than, more than in the sort of, you know, a brief time horizon. But again, the reality is just you need to, you need to stick this out and you need, you need to remain focused because th- there's um, some exogenous factors that are, that are now playing into things. Things that are largely out of the administration's control, um, and so everybody's got to stay focused because this this package that is moving through Congress is a massive, massive, massive thing, and it's critically important. And it will be great if it gets passed and people see the importance, and the Democrats have a better you know midterm than people are anticipating. But even if they don't, in that case, it's even more important because you're not going to get another chance, at least yeah, not for a few years. And I would say on the how much you have to worry about this front, um, Pelosi had a call with the leadership team on Monday and someone familiar familiar with the call told me that you know she called this done amateur hour. She said uh, children have leverage in this deal for the first time. So it sounds like she's being very dismissive of the tactic. And for anyone who's thinking, well, maybe this is the first step these people want to take so they can get the bipartisan deal done and don't have to vote for the reconciliation bill. You know, obviously, maybe that's a possibility. But, you know, while Gottheimer is kind of like making a fuss about this, he's also negotiating to try to get the salt cap into the reconciliation bill, which is basically you know, a tax break for the most affluent constituents. So the whole thing and, is and stupid. And there they are. He, he has a wealthy northern New Jersey district. Right. So his his constituents are the people who get hit by that. And for those people, it's a pretty big hit. You do, you know, because the New Jersey, New York, these are high tax states. So yeah, I, this is like I said, he's full of it. He's full of it, and and Nancy Pelosi will, m- you know, mow him down. My concern, to the extent there's a concern, is that you start having, you know, Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin or maybe a couple others saying, okay, hey, things are feeling a little different. Not that they're going to kind of say, screw the whole thing, but like, I think what what's going to end up happening is they'll knock down 3.0 trillion to like 3.45 trillion or maybe 3.4 trillion. It's not great, but okay, fine. To the extent we should be concerned, I think it's, it's, I've seen this happen before. I've seen people get wobbly before. I don't think this will happen. I'm just saying, have your eyes open for it. Because this is a point where people need to kind of keep their focus. And I'm just saying a midterms, you're, the response to a president losing approval rates and your reaction is, well, let's torpedo any legislative achievements we can get before the midterms is pure lunacy. But and we're the people, just yeah, yeah, yeah. People in some in some ways, people are people are self just self-serving. They want to save themselves. But but fundamentally, they're stupid. Because yep. as you say, if 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 Joe Biden is kind of dipping down to 49% support, check out his support when his entire agenda goes down in flames. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And again, for everybody listening to this, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's very unlikely it's going to happen. I'm just saying these are those moments where you get some reverses and everybody needs to stay focused. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, an even gloomier topic called redistricting. So there, the census data dropped on Thursday, which basically starts the clock for states to start redrawing their maps. Uh, the Senate's not coming back until September 15th, which is when Schumer said that 
uh, voting rights, getting the compromise bill, which is expected to be a, a winnow down version of For the People Act. That'll be the first priority when they come back. But, you know, what I was curious about is, is that too late? What does the clock look like? Can you pass any meaningful redistricting reforms in a way that they will be in place for the 2022 cycle? Let me ask you one question, though. Is it not the case that obviously it was, well, let me me back up. Is it not the case that the census results, the granular results were a bit better than Democrats were expecting for Democrats? And, totally. and, and kind of everybody agrees on this. I mean, that's not to say it's great that, oh, the Democrats suddenly now they're going to, you know, kind of uh, obviously win the House next year. But it was actually significantly different than people expected and better for Democrats. Totally. But doesn't matter that much when the battleground states are overwhelmingly controlled by Republican legislatures who will now have to get kind of crafty and creative to mm-hmm. draw that advantage right out of our electoral system. Right, right, right. Have, have you been, can I, I, I yeah, apologize yeah, for interrupting you. Have you been following the situation in New York State about, and just for our, our listeners, the key is here, if, de- if, if Republicans, Democrats could gerrymander like most of the re- representatives from New York, Republican representatives from New York out. And the sort of the question is, will they, will they say, oh, no, 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 no partisan gerrymandering. We'll never do that. Or do they take a more kind of ruthless approach and say, look, as long as this is legal, we're not, we're not, you know, um, uh, you know, unilaterally surrendering. Where are you, are you keeping track of that? I've What's only going followed on it up to the point of that question, not yeah, beyond yeah. it. My sense is, is that, I mean, frankly, to me, I think the Democratic position should be, yes, gerrymandered New York and also support the For the People Act, which will make that illegal. But I mean... It, 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 it is, again, you don't unilaterally disarm. Every, every Republican-controlled state is going to be doing this. And for Democrats not to, when they can, is just silly. And is that hypocritical? No, I don't think it is at all. Because at least for me, I'm completely in support of the legislation that will, that will change this because it should be changed. Right. I mean, though, unilaterally disarming is Democrats' kind of favorite go-to. Let's play by the rule book while the other side shreds it up. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, it's, it's yeah, I, 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 I'm start, starting to hear stuff that makes me think they may do it. And again, they can, they can eliminate, uh, I mean, there's uh, this guy who, who uh, writes for the, for the Cook Report, who does house stuff for the Cook Report. And he's been saying for a while that like the only way the Democrats can hold the House is if there is a partisan gerrymander in um, in New York State, and 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 just for for um, for context, what we're talking about is not one of these cases where you make, make like absurd districts, right? I mean, <laughs> even a even you don't have to sort of push it very far to be able to eliminate a lot of Republican districts. It's a Democratic state, um, but in any case, it's it's. It's, um, I, I think, you know, the one thing that people don't focus on enough is that if Joe Biden's really popular in November 2020, uh, 2022, Democrats are going to hold the House. And if he's not, they're going to get walloped. What we're talking about here is these kind of fine gradations of the terrain if it's kind of just exactly in between. Right. But if we are in that exactly in between scenario, uh, those New York potential New York pickup seats are going to count for a lot. Right. So on the kind of race to now parties, uh, partisan gerrymander, everything, I talked to experts and essentially they said there's not a point where it kind of becomes too late to do anything. But the longer Congress waits, the messier it is. And we've already gotten to a place where some reforms that the For the People Act would have put into place are just too late. And that those are things like, you know, mandating independent commissions rather than partisan boards. For that, they would have had to pass the For the People Act in January to get those boards set up. So ship has sailed on that. On some reforms, the ship is starting to sail away like the transparency mandates behind the drawing of the maps for the public, or uh, there's a, a part of the For the People Act that would take away state laws, legislative privilege that it gives to the map drawing process. Because in the past, 
you know, lawmakers and, and map drawers and kind of operatives have used legislative privilege to shield their communications about how they're going about drawing the maps. Like in, in Texas, that happened. And it was only during litigation that it came out. There were these emails where uh, operatives for the Republican uh congressmen were just saying outright kind of talking about their strategy of how to uh, spread out the Hispanic vote to basically take away the voting power of that entire block. So the For the People Act would basically take away that shield from that being in like the public domain. That stuff we're starting to get passed. And as the as the maps get drawn, it's not going to be all that you know, there's n- you don't have time to put in the reform that makes the public be part of the map drawing process once the map is drawn. And the good news here is that you, if they pass it and if they pass it for the People Act, which has standards for how maps have to be drawn, standards the maps must meet to not be considered, you know, an unfair map, they can pass that at any time and retroactively apply it to maps that have already been passed. The problem with that is then you're going to have to use litigation to get to bat the map down. And the problem is many conservative majority courts, including the Supreme Court, have shown themselves unwilling to shoot down even blatantly unfair racially discriminatory maps. Some courts that struck down bad maps in the past in really fundamental and important ways, like in Florida and North Carolina, have become more conservative since then uh, with the people who have been appointed. You also have the problem that the For the People Act would address, which is that the litigation can drag on for years and it can leave the bad maps in place for election cycles that happen while these maps are still being fought over. The For the People Act would streamline that litigation, but without it, it can be dragged out and the maps can be left in place. This is also the first redistricting cycle we'll have without the Voting Rights Act. So before, one expert kind of described it to me as with the Voting Rights Act, there was a cop on the block, basically. States didn't try to get away with that much because they knew their maps had to be pre-cleared and they would be caught, essentially. I say without the, for the Voting Rights Act, I should say with a very hobbled Voting Rights Act. Supreme Court has basically taken a hatchet to it. But now the incentive is be as aggressive as possible, put out as gerrymandered a map as possible, kind of force someone to take you to court over it and hope that while the litigation drags out, you'll get in a few election cycles with your really unfair map. And also the Supreme Court decision that came down this year on the Voting Rights Act makes it more difficult for minority voters to bring lawsuits showing that the maps are discriminatory. Another thing the Voting Rights Act would help with because it allows the attorney general to intervene in those cases, which would then, you know, bring the might of the federal government to these cases. And then, you know, I'll kind of end with, there's also the risk that prolonged litigation could actually force elections to be rescheduled, which has also happened in the past. And that's just going to you know, create an environment of voter confusion, risk driving people from the polls because they don't know when it is or they took off this day. They're not going to take off another day. So it's just it gets so, so messy. And it's not at all kind of a guaranteed win, even if the maps are very, very unfair, all which kind of load up the side of the argument, which is. Democrats need to pass whatever this compromise bill is, assuming it seems to be from what I've talked to people will still have the crux of the redistricting reforms because the caucus sees that as, you know, a a really huge kind of existential threat that they need to pass it as soon as possible or things get harder and they might not win. And and just so people understand. And so I understand Mm -hmm. the sort of the core issue um, and, 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 you know, there's, there's sort of a core issue. Then there's these, um, you know, sort of onion layers out mm-hmm. out from it. And that the core issues, if you go back to, there was a major redistricting case, I guess it was maybe three years ago. I can't remember exactly. Supreme Court case. And my understanding at least is the Supreme Court said, yeah, in theory, you can't, you know, just sort of do partisan advantage or do things that are unfair or whatever. But there's just no standard. There's no why are we deciding what's fair, or what's partisan, or what it gets a little more complicated with, uh, you know, targeting racial minorities and stuff. But the court basically said, "Hey, it's the the legislatures can decide, states decide what's fair." And and what the court was at least implicitly imply, uh, inviting uh, Congress to do was to, was to tell them what was fair and what the For the People Act does is create a basically a framework. This is okay. That's not okay. 
And now, obviously, you're 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 dealing with the fact that conservative courts are going to have to, you know, litigate that legislation. But but it is black letter law, black letter constitutional law, that Congress is in charge of federal elections. States decide how things work unless and until Congress says, no, you can't do that. And we're going to tell you how to do it. And that it's that thing, which, as you just said, kind of gets you into court as opposed to the court just saying, no, there's no there's no standard. So sorry. Right. And that still is a big deal, I think, even if you don't have the commission, even if the commissions can't be set up in time and blah, 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 blah. Right. Exactly. Now, of course, it's not just the prolonged recess that's putting this in danger to pass whatever form of the For the People Act this bill ends up being has to go through regular order, which means has to, at this point, scale the 60-vote threshold to overcome the filibuster. So, you know, it's not just kind of a matter of getting this bill together and getting it passed quickly. You also have to somehow convince Manchin and Cinema that, you know, this, this very real threat to democracy and very specific threat to Democrats with the House in 2022, but, you know, raises the possibility that they'll be boxed out of power in winnable places for years is more important than sustaining the filibuster, which, I mean, no one's been able to do yet. Do we have, when you say slim down, do we Mm -hmm. have a sense of what gets slimmed in this version? There's a million details, but broadly speaking, what, what what gets tossed? So last I heard when I was on the Hill before the Senate left, it was the slim down version is focusing on the the pressure points of, you know, voting rights safeguards, stopping partisan gerrymandering, and curbing the influx of dark money. And that's about as specific as people have been willing to get. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, and I, I talked to a lot of voting rights advocates kind of about, is the Democratic plan, are you satisfied with it? Is it enough? Are they moving fast enough? And the chorus of response was basically no. You know, we want them to come back early from recess. Democracy is more important than their vacation. But all of them kind of expressed this hopefulness that, you know what, at least Manchin is part of crafting this compromise bill. It seems, you know, of course, with him, anything's possible, but it seems less likely that he is right now in his mind saying, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to let this legislation pass if he's helping craft it. So they kind of point to that as a reason for optimism. Mm -hmm. I think they were also pleased that in general, you know, Schumer gave that speech where he said, it's all going to be all voting rights when we get back first priority, you know, it's going to be on the floor. So, I, I mean, I think there's optimism in the way that the push isn't dead. You know, they didn't kind of stop after the For the People Act got filibustered and just give up. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I mean, I asked them and what are they going to say? But we come up against the filibuster. I mean, and after reconciliation's out the door, everything's going to come up against the filibuster if it's still in place by then. It's it's funny because, you know, the the events of the not hot, Vax summer, right? The sort of the turn of events with COVID, potentially what's happening in Afghanistan. You know, that may change kind of where we are politically over the next six months. Um, but there was this idea going into the the infrastructure package that, well, doing the mini bill is going to kind of convince everybody that, oh, the Senate works and the filibuster is awesome and you can do everything and everything's great and all this kind of stuff. I yes, that's possible. That's possible. One way it plays out, but I actually saw it as kind of potentially a little different. Where uh, Biden comes off that really kind of empowered. Again, you pass big bills. That we, you know, we always have this idea of this metaphor of political capital. You use political capital to do big things. That's totally wrong. That's not how it works. When you accomplish big things, you get more political. Uh, capital. When you win, you get more capital. When you lose, you lose capital, right? You want to win, win, win. Um, So I think it is at least possible that that he will be empowered on that front, Um, whether it's enough. That's a totally different question. And that's why in some ways, when we talk about like, okay, what's in the new bill? What's in the, you know, the slim down uh, for the People Act? To me, like, I almost don't even care. Because because it all the whole thing only comes down to whether or not you 
whether whether you're dealing with filibuster or not. Now, obviously, it it matters. You don't want to you don't want a version of it that sucks and has everything stripped out. But if you're talking about um, if you're talking about you know if is the glass. 80% full or 70% full. I don't really care about that percent full. <laughs> if I if am I going to be able to drink it? Right? <laughs> whether or not I'm going to be able to drink it makes way more of a difference to whether it's 70% or 90% or 79.3% or whatever. Can I drink the can I drink the, the glass? <laughs> right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what uh, Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, I asked him if, you know, where he was at about voting for a strip down for the People Act. And he was like, uh, I can't imagine that I can't vote for it or that it would be something I can't vote for. And you're like, that seemed to be kind of the posture of most Democrats. So, And, you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, uh, Casey, you know, Casey's dad was a big political force mm-hmm. back when I was closer to your age, right? Um, was governor of Pennsylvania, which I think the son was too. At some, I may be wrong about that. In any case, comes from a political family, very big political family. Uh, the big thing about the dad was that he was a big player in democratic politics in Pennsylvania, but he was pro-life. And his political career coincided with the period where that was just not doable anymore basically. Um, in any case, the point being, Casey is kind of like, he's an actual moderate, mm-hmm. right? Someone who's not, you know, we kind of, we, we, today moderate is, is a label that we apply for people who preen a lot and make trouble <laughs> as opposed to what their ideology is, right? right? He's an actual moderate, which kind of shows you, cause is there some, is there some reason why a moderate would not want to do this? No, not really. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. Okay, so now we're moving on to uh, the pandemic that will never end. So the pandemic among the unvaccinated has raged on and we've gotten some cases, I shouldn't say cases, some situations of late that are really just kind of eye popping. For example, Governor Greg Abbott from Texas has just tested positive for COVID. He is vaccinated and last I heard asymptomatic. Um, Hard to tell where he picked up the infection because he's attended so many indoor maskless events lately that, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of narrow them down. Uh, the he, was, he was like at like a jamboree or something like three days <laughs> yeah. ago, like the day before, like you see him there and like there's people everywhere and no masks and everything. Yep. And, yeah. and in the tradition of Trump, you know, of course, he's kind of getting the whole suite of high level treatments after studiously exacerbating the crisis in his state, uh, which included an executive order banning mask mandates in schools, uh, letting businesses open at 100% capacity, meanwhile, requesting out-of-state medical help and asking hospitals, which are nearly out of ICU beds in Texas, to stop all elective surgeries. So that's where we are in the Lone Star State. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, it, 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 it's funny. One thing that is, that is worth keeping in mind for perspective, um, we, in, in the public memory, we talk about the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. In fact, it went on for like three or four years. Um, it, it particularly went on and I, I may have like, you know, I may be six months off here. It was a multi-year thing. It went in successive waves. The first wave was not the worst. And over the course of a, of, I don't know, two to four years, it killed a significant percentage of the global population. It was horrible. And over, again, three or four years, the world got not to, you know, herd immunity, but got to a point where basically everybody's immune system had been exposed to the thing. And it kind of became endemic and, you know, whatever. Uh, And, you know, there's a piece um, in the Atlantic, there's a few pieces that are basically saying this now is it's a hell of a lot better than it was in 1918. For a lot of reasons, the ma- the the mostly because of the vaccines, but the clearly we are on a path to that same endemicity, which is when it is just kind of prevalent in the 
global population. There's some people out there saying, well, everybody's eventually going to get it. I'm not, I, I'm not a specialist enough to have any idea whether that's true. But what I think is true is that over a course of a, you know, a few years, everybody's immune system will be acquainted with it. Maybe because you got vaccinated, maybe because you got sick, maybe because you got sick and vaccinated or vice versa. And that at a certain point, there won't be, there will be very few people in the globe whose immune systems have never seen this before and have what we know can happen with, 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 uh, with COVID, which was happening through most of last year, certainly in the spring of 2020. Um, and that's kind of where we are. It's not great. Yeah. And the only other thing I wanted to bring up on this front is we just got the news right before uh, we went on the air that the TSA is expanding mask mandates for planes, trains, and buses into January. They are not, for inquiring minds, instituting any kind of vaccine mandate. It is, it's just masks, which my first blush reaction was, I don't know, are you kidding me? I guess who's not going to wear a mask and be willing to brawl with a flight attendant rather than put one on. It's going to be unvaccinated people. And I mean, we've discussed this at length in a previous episode, but to me, I'm just, it seems like kowtowing to the vocal minority that's, that is raising holy hell over the possibility of vaccine mandates. It's like living in fear of, of Fox News, but mask mandates, it's not going to cut it. It's just not going to cut it. It's, it, it is not enough. I, I would, on this, I would say kind of like, I think we need to give it a little time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying it's great to give it time, but you know, it, it, I don't think this is the last word on, on any of this. I saw news. This is, this is more just a symbolic thing than anything that in itself will have a big effect. But, um, the National Chamber of Congress, uh, Commerce, Chamber of Commerce, you know, mm-hmm. huge political force uh, for corporate America, uh, just made a rule: you can't come into their offices in DC if you're not vaccinated. National Association, National Association of Manufacturers can't work there if you're not vaccinated. Same with the Business Roundtable; don't work here if you're not vaccinated. I think there is um, there is no more patience for this. And not everything is going to happen immediately. And, uh, you know, it'll, it, it'll vary. But I think um, patience is running out on the voluntarily unvaccinated. And that's good. And it'll lead to more and more mandate type things yeah. as we go forward. Yeah, I hope you are right. All right. So uh, we're running short on time. We'll come to our question from Zach, who says, if the progressive nightmare comes true and one or some of the moderates in the Senate tank the reconciliation bill, should the progressive wing of the party swallow the bitter pill and vote for the bipartisan bill regardless of the reconciliation bill, or should they let it all go down in flames? You know, I'll say something that is that is n- normally the kind of thing that I never say, because you don't make the, you know, what is it, the 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 perfect, the enemy of the good or the, whatever <laughs> that analogy is. Um, yes, I think they should let it go down in flames. And, and here again, that is, that is never the kind of where I come from on these kind of things. But here's why I think that. Um, if it all goes down in flames, that is a catastrophe, a catastrophe. But sometimes you need to take risks to force something. And I think it is a risk worth taking in this case because of this, a big climate package is existential right now. The social democratic and, uh, you know, probably shouldn't use that word, safety net parts of it are extremely important. The, the hard infrastructure stuff in the mini bill, that's really important. But will the country go down the tubes without it? No. So I think, and, and the one thing I would say is, Zach said, you know, the progressives, what should the progressives do? As I said before, I don't, this isn't really about the progressives, at least in the way that that phrase is often used today. This isn't about like AOC and Bernie. Yes, they're they're in favor of it, but the vast majority of Democratic senators and representatives are for it. So this isn't 
this isn't about taking away credit from them or you know anything like like that. They are a huge reason why we're here, why this is the consensus democratic position. Mm-hmm. But the point is, we shouldn't be cowed into this position of like, oh, it's this, you know, it's the centrists versus, you know, little slice of centrists and a little slice of progressives over here. It's really the entire Democratic caucus in both houses, you know, at least 80 percent. This is not what they're kind of agreeing to do. It's what they're trying to do. Um, and so I, you need to play hardball. And so my answer is yes. If you get into a situation where Kirsten's, I don't think we're going to get into that situation. But if we did, I mean, I'm pretty confident we're not going to get into that situation. But if we did, I think the rest of the Democrats should, would, should and I hope will say, then fuck your mini bill. We had a deal and this is critical and we're not giving way. Now, is that your stance with the possibility that through some kind of maneuvering of Senate rules, you could tank these things and bring them up for another vote or just in general? Like if, if reconciliation is done, there's no second bite at the apple. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think I, it yeah, through as we talk. I guess there's, there's no way that it, a reconciliation vehicle fails, doesn't get enough votes, and then you can't use that vehicle again. Yeah, I don't. I look. You know, maybe there's a situation where you kind of it 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 goes down once, and then I mean, look. I don't want any of this to go down. Any of it is a disaster on substance, and it will be a catastrophe for the Democratic Party if the whole thing comes to nothing. So, I'm not trying to punish anybody here. And yes, if there's some kind of you know, sometimes. I mentioned a few days ago in a post what happened after uh, you know that guy won uh, Ted Kennedy's seat in the Senate, the Republican uh, Scott Brown in 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 2010, and they had to kind of wriggle and figure out all these workarounds and all this kind of stuff to to save Obamacare. So yeah, if there's some way, kind of like the reconciliation thing goes down, and they need to kind of do some stuff for a couple of weeks and bring it up again, great great. You know, work, do whatever you need to do to get it done. My point is, is that in the, whatever the details, if it all comes down to a moment where you have Kirsten Cinema and or Joe Manchin or someone else saying, I'm putting my foot down. We're not doing this reconciliation stuff. We have the bipartisan hard infrastructure thing, pass it, and we're not doing anything else. I think the answer should be no then we're not doing anything. And is that because I want to not do anything again out of some sort of punitive or kind of burn the place down? No. But you need to be willing to take that risk to get to the finish line here. So that's, yep. my, that's my answer. Yep. I'm with you there. All right. Okay. Have we talked about all the, all, the, all, the, all the doom on the horizon? We covered much of the doom, much if not all, always more doom. It's an infinite resource. Well, I will say this. I, um, you know, th- this is this is a we're in a rough spot right now. We're in a rough spot because of the of the deep reality of the of the of the pandemic and where it is. Right. I mean, that's a, that is a that is a biological reality. That's not the sort of the spin and and what Mike Allen is saying about you know uh, how many relief flights or you know kind of evacuation flights are going out of Kabul. That's that's a reality. That is a reality we're in, and that's tough. And that's tough for the most obvious reason, which is all the immiseration it is causing around the world. Um, it is also can can change the calculus politically. Uh, we've got this situation in Afghanistan, which you know, if you read what I've said on the site, you know what I think about it. But again, uh, politics creates its own facts sometimes. So we're we're in a we're in a rough spot, but um, rough spots don't last forever. And I think foundationally, we still remain in a pretty good place on this kind of global package. And if that happens, I think uh, new opportunities will open up. So this is this is me kind of subtly getting back at, at, at Kate's doomism here. No, I think I think that's right. And I think it's it is helpful to think about while we're in the midst of a new cycle, it feels so all encompassing and kind of like this is all it's ever been. This is all it's it will be. But it was just last week that the Senate passed the bipartisan deal, did the vote ram up passed the budget resolution top line and left for recess. I mean, that was like a big 
day of victory for Democrats and it was a week ago. So yeah. the, to counter the, my own doomism. <laughs> and the reality is, is that it is, that hasn't changed. There's some, there's some, there's some headwinds. There's some very real headwinds, but that has not changed. So, you know, everybody buck up. Chin up. <laughs> All right. So remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, the best ice coffee in the universe. If you're ready to give it a try, you can uh, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And if, right. you didn't, if you didn't catch that the first time, Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Thanks for being with us. Talk to you later. <laughs>